Hi there. Welcome to Nature Spirit, exploring the spirituality of a living world. I'm your host, Priscilla Stuckey. Why is the world so beautiful? This question inspired a young, plant-loving woman of the citizen Potawatomi Nation to go to college and study botany. Robin Wall Kimmerer tells the story in her luminous book, Braiding Sweetgrass, how this question guided her as she earned a Ph.D. and became a professor of botany, and how it guided her, too, to find her way back home to indigenous understandings of plants. Why is the world so beautiful? I ran across her question again back in December during the holidays, and this time I decided to really pay attention. It was the season of giving, and the question itself felt like a gift, something to be carried gently into the new year and unwrapped slowly over time. So now we're six months into the year and we just passed the solstice. Where did the time go? Happy solstice to each of you. And I'm still carrying the gift. I try to unwrap it every morning. Why is the world so beautiful? Waking up to this question gives me a nudge every day to step outside and take a fresh look and appreciate what I see. And there is so much. My own little slice of the beautiful world includes, in the distance, a small bay of the blue Pacific Ocean and beside it an old volcano worn down over time, its rounded-down head often wearing a narrow crown of fluffy white clouds. Right over my head are the thick spreading branches of a huge monkey pod tree, where in the mornings a crimson northern cardinal often sits to sing. He's the first to wake up in the morning, calling everyone else awake, and he's the last one to sing everyone else to sleep after night falls. At dawn, he's joined by white-eyed warblers and house finches and zebra doves trilling and cooing in a chorus, and the lovebirds who roost in the eaves of this cottage are stirring and chirping, often fussing at their neighbors as if they're just taking up the old argument where they left it off the night before. They have rosy heads and bodies of mint green or sky blue or sunny yellow, and they gleam bright and bold in the morning light. And the sky, oh, the sky, each morning when I look up, the sky is new. If I wake up before dawn, I get to watch one of the brightest stars of the night be the last one to wink out in the morning. That star is Vega, passing overhead now. At the last solstice, in this same hour before dawn, Vega hung low in the northeastern horizon. Over six months, I have watched Vega sail up and over our heads, past the zenith. I'd never tracked the path of Vega before. It's one of the gifts of waking up and looking out to ask each morning, Why is the world so beautiful? And each morning the world is new. So beautiful that I can only say, wow, and thank you. The wonder of it all, that we should be alive, here, now, that we can open our eyes and ears every morning to the beauty of sky and water and trees and plants and birds and animals, it boggles the mind. 
just appreciating such beauty for a few moments takes me to a new place for the day. It carries me right into wonder and awe. Now, I can just about hear what some of you are thinking. She lives on a tropical island. Who wouldn't see beauty every day? But before you click away, let me tell you a little more about my tropical island. Let me tell you about the grassland I see every morning, stretching out across Maui's hillside as far as it goes. The grass is here because the forests that used to cover these volcanoes, from their tops down nearly to the coasts, were destroyed in the 1800s by logging and by being trampled under grazing animals brought here by American sugar barons for their upcountry ranches. Then in the 1920s, after the trees were gone and the land had eroded, American scientists brought kikuyu grass from Africa and sent cuttings out to all those ranchers to stabilize the soil. But now the soil on this side of the island can't grow anything else because the kikuyu grass squeezes it out with a dense mat of roots that can reach four feet or more into the ground. And the grass is flammable, and now there are brush fires on this island in a place that never evolved with fire because the forests that were here cooled the soil and kept it moist. Just a few nights ago, I went to sleep with the smell of smoke from the latest wildfire. And let me tell you about the water I look out on. Here on Maui, we treat our sewer water and then we pump it out into the ocean. But the treated water is only mostly pure, not completely pure. So the extra nutrients left in the water support the growth of invasive algae. And the algae sprout on the reefs and crowd out the corals. And the nitrogen in that wastewater and in the runoff from golf courses weakens the sea turtles, and some of them catch a herpes virus that causes large white masses of tumors to grow on their eyes or mouths or necks, and I have seen these tumors. The tall palm trees outside my window and even the majestic monkey pod over my head are exotics imported from somewhere else often by Americans who wanted these islands to look more like Florida, which they understood, than like Hawaii, which they didn't. And none of the birds I hear in the dawn chorus are native, all of them brought here from somewhere else, as pets or as game birds, or just because the people who came here missed the birds from home. The coastal areas of Maui lost all their native birds already decades ago. So this land is wounded land. These waters are under enormous stress. The Hawaiian Islands, because they're thousands of miles away from other land masses, gave birth to 10,000 native species, and 9,000 of those are endemic, meaning they're found nowhere else in the world, and many are endangered. Just in recent decades, we lost eight more forest birds to extinction. All of this is true, and I am aware of all of it when I wake up every morning. And yet, at the same time, the earth is pumping out beauty enough in any one day to last a lifetime. This world is magnificent, gobsmackingly gorgeous. A sky of blue, and under it growing things, birds trilling, an ocean that reflects the precise hues of the sky— Every day it fills me with awe. Why is the world so beautiful?
Gregory Cajete is an indigenous scholar of the Santa Clara Pueblo who says in his book Native Science that feeling awe lies at the heart of spirituality. He writes, Our innate sense of awe at nature's majesty is the core experience of spirituality. From this sense of awe flow the foundation of community and the right relationship with all aspects of nature. So I want to look a little more at this experience of awe and why it is so important and so necessary, why it helps us toward right relationships with others here on Earth. And it turns out that Western science, too, has a lot to say about this. This week I've been catching up on the work of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley. One of its co-founders is Dacher Keltner, a professor of psychology who has been studying the experience of awe for more than 20 years. Dacher's new book came out in January, and it's full of what they've discovered in their psychology lab about human beings and how we experience awe. They define awe as that feeling we get when we're in the presence of something vast, something that challenges our understanding. In the presence of something so huge or so intricate, people often report that they feel small, but in a good way humble and amazed and connected up with everything around them. As an example, think of that feeling you get when you've been hiking up a mountain, working and working with each step, and suddenly you arrive at the top and the view opens out into this huge panorama and you go, ah. It's so large and so beautiful and you're so small, but you feel happy to be part of it all. In Dacher Keltner's lab, they do neuroimaging to see what the brain can tell them about this experience of feeling small. And what they find is that when people are experiencing awe, the parts of the brain that fire up when we're focusing on our own lives and our own plans start to deactivate. As he puts it, the self-regions of the brain start to calm down. And our attention gets drawn instead toward the world around us, and the usual boundaries soften and dissolve. Experiencing awe frees us to feel connected to everything, and it's a joyful experience. Keltner comments, What a striking property of the human condition, that when we let go of the self, all the joy begins. It turns out that joy is only one of the many good things that happen inside of people when we feel awe. Lonnie Shiota is a psychologist at Arizona State who also studies awe, and she and her team find that experiencing awe changes people for the better. It especially changes how people take in and process information. When people are experiencing awe, they tend to have more accurate perception than usual. They can see and hear a little bit better what is actually in front of them. Because most of the time, we tend to pull our past experiences into the forefront and then view what is before us through that filter of old events. But when people feel awe, they're more able to be present to what's right in front of them. Or, as Shiota says, They take in information in a relatively unbiased way. It means they're a little less influenced by what they want to see and a little more open to what they actually see. And not only do people see more clearly, they think more clearly too. 
people who have just been feeling awe are more skeptical when they hear bad reasoning about something, they think more critically, they have better discernment. As Shiota puts it, awe seems to reduce our tendency to filter our current experience through what we think we already know. You can already see why experiencing awe would be so crucial at a moment like this, when people are falling under the spell of misinformation from so many directions. But this is only the start of the benefits of feeling awe. Many studies over the past 20 years have shown that experiencing awe also leads us to treat other people better. Feeling awe actually makes us kinder and more generous. Feeling awe weakens people's desire for money. This is an amazing finding, right? The bottom line is, awe makes us better people, more ethical people, more loving and empathetic people. And in a finding that didn't surprise me, feeling awe in nature also, as Keltner puts it, often goes along with the sense that plants and animals are conscious and aware. This is something that indigenous peoples have known since forever and that Western science is only beginning to catch up to. And all of these changes in people underscore what Gregory Cajete said, awe and wonder are the key to right relationship with others on earth, all others, both human and more than human, because awe helps us see clearly and puts us in the frame of mind to treat others well to see miracles all around us, and to feel connected to the grand unfolding of life. Losing awe and wonder means losing our connection to the mystery of becoming, how all life on earth is still unfolding, how a mighty tree unrolls from a seed, how our own bodies grow without our instructions, how species separate over generations, adding new characteristics, dropping others, how new variations unfold over time. Those who forget to be amazed at that unfolding and how far it exceeds our human understanding will try to force things to unfold according to their own lights. They will try to coerce others to conform to their plans, whether those others are humans or wetlands forests or rivers. This is how tyrants and colonizers and enslavers are made, by losing touch with the wonder of other beings, how vast their lives, how unstoppable the life force within them. This is how fascists are made, by forgetting that we are small, beautifully small in the scheme of things, and forgetting how joyful it feels to be only a small, connected-up part. This, too, is how we send species into extinction, by losing our amazement at their beauty, their contribution, their unique thread in the tapestry of relations on earth. And falling out of awe is how the Supreme Court can decide that wetlands don't need to be protected under the Clean Water Act, which just happened in the Sackett v. EPA case. The U.S. includes over a 100 million acres of wetlands But this ruling changes their definition in a way that will threaten almost half of these wetlands. It's all about not understanding swamps, not being in awe of marshes, 
falling out of touch with the great mystery of how water cleans itself, how it purifies the land, how wetlands protect coastlines. People who are willing to destroy water's power to purify are people who have forgotten how to be amazed by every part of nature, even if they don't understand it. Awe could save us. Awe could help us recover our respect for what wetlands do, what forests do, what rivers and reefs do. Awe, in fact, may be the only thing that will save us, because awe teaches us to take our appropriate place in the community of beings on earth. Awe explodes our arrogance. Wonder and awe make us humble and increase our joy in the process. And joy is the best possible response to a world that lavishes us with so much beauty, beauty that unfolds in ever-new complexity in a daily mystery of ever-springing life. The life force is unstoppable. In the famous lines of poet Gerard Manley Hopkins, And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest, freshness, deep-down things. That deep-down freshness is still present, even on wounded land, even here on Maui, on land where forests have not grown for over a hundred years. The life force is still springing, and the forests could grow again because people right now are working to help them flourish, and the forests are responding. Art Medeiros is a biologist born and raised in Hawaii. Twenty-five years ago, he led a group of people in fencing off a square of dry land near the top of Maui's big volcano, Haleakala. The fence keeps out all the wild pigs and deer and goats. After the fence was up, people planted some native trees to encourage the forest to re-sprout. And after some time had passed, they planted shrubs and plants that the tall trees used to live with in the native dryland forest. Now, most people don't know about the dryland forests of Hawaii. I didn't either before I moved here. When we think tropical forest, we picture a lush, wet rainforest. But every Hawaiian island also has its dry side, away from the clouds and rain, and the forests on the dry sides of our mountains held the other half of life, the dryland half, broadleaf trees and a thick understory of plants and shrubs and so many birds and insects. But now only 3% of our dryland forests remain. You only have to look across the hills I look at every day to see just how gone the forests are. Art Medeiros says, We used to ask ourselves, Can anything be done here? At the time, he says, people were saying, Oh no, nothing can be done. The forests are dead. They're gone. But in working for a few years with that fenced-off square of dry land, Art and the volunteers learned something about the forests. When you try to help them, oh, they come back, he says, they're not gone. The forest was just waiting. After a hundred years with no baby seedlings, one year, new shoots began to pop up from the ground. I say the trees forgave us, Art says. Many of them started to have babies again. First it was the common things, and then it was the rarer things. 
he pulls up a picture of tiny green shoots of jalapepe, an endangered native tree, poking up from the ground. It's magical, he says, to see the components of ancient Hawaiian forest putting themselves back together. That's the miracle part of my work. When you do your part and something else responds, he says, it's an amazing feeling. The land and waters in every other spot of the world are waiting, too. Waiting for people to care for them, to take a first few steps to help bring them back to flourishing. There's no better antidote for the sadness and grief we feel in the face of losing so much of the earth than to move closer to the mighty power of this same earth, to get our fingers into the regenerating soil, to help restore our own corner of this beautiful, awe-inspiring earth. We do not work alone. When we lend a hand, the earth responds with more beauty and more life. Because the world's beauty is not spent. It is available every day to feed our wonder, to soothe our jangled spirits, to heal our grief. This is an earth that is still becoming, still turning up new shoots out of the ground, still hatching young fish and young turtles, still gathering cotton ball clouds above our heads, still tinging those clouds pink and orange and purple at the start and end of each day. This is an earth that churns out beauty when it doesn't have to. Why is the world so beautiful? I don't know, but that beauty is a comfort and a mystery and a wonder beyond comprehending. Wonder is our lifeline. Awe is the thread that we can follow to find our way out of this maze we are lost in. Awe is our daily practice and our daily joy. If there's one thing we can do every day, it's find some awe. Because awe opens our hearts. It shrinks us down to our real size. It shows us we're not alone and allows us to feel connected to everything and everyone else. It grows us in love. Why is the world so beautiful? Wishing for you some amazement every day to keep you nestled firmly in the lap of this mighty and beautiful earth. You've been listening to Nature Spirit, a podcast with Priscilla Stuckey. For a transcript of this episode, or if you'd like to read further on the topic, go to my website, priscillastuckey.com, and click on the Nature Spirit link. Or check out my books, Kissed by a Fox and Other Stories of Friendship in Nature, and Tamed by a Bear, Coming Home to Nature Spirit Self, both published by Counterpoint Press. Until next time. Be well and be blessed.